Hey guys, thanks for joining us for this 137th episode in Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guest on this episode will be author, comedian, and lawyer John Bramnick. We'll talk about his book, Why People Don't Like You. We'll also visit with singer from Team Kelly on Season 21 of The Voice, Jeremy Rosado. We'll also visit stolen by Team Legend on this season, Jershika Maple. And we'll also visit with country singer and songwriter Michael Monroe Goodman. We'll talk about his new single, Oh What a Pitiful Shame. Of course, if you would, please take the time to subscribe, comment, leave some feedback, check out the shop, and of course, share with your friends. Now, people online are debating the things that everyone just pretends to like. And somehow, other people's kids was not the most popular answer. Now, someone suggested it, but a bunch of people said they like other people's kids sometimes. But everyone is in agreement that strangers' kids, yeah, they're horrible. Now, some other things that other people only pretend to like include NFTs, company holiday parties, TV shows like The Voice and The Masked Singer, watching golf on TV, neighbors, vacationing with extended family, pregnancy, running, and going to church on Sunday. Now, working a corporate job and using phrases like manage client expectations and circle back also made the list. He's got a lot to live up to. The funniest lawyer in New Jersey, John Bramnick. We're going to talk about his new book, Why People Don't Like You. And I need a little insight myself, John, so I appreciate you taking some time today. Well, I hear everybody likes you, so you don't need to buy the book. (laughs) The the people who need the book never buy it. Isn't that the way it always goes, John? Well, of course, because the people who aren't listening are the ones who need to listen. The people who already are successful... You know, they probably buy the book and then they get more successful and the people who are less successful become less successful. Where did the start of the book, when did you start the process of writing the book? What was the inspiration? What was the needle that broke the camel's back, if you will? Well, for 18 years, I've been in the state legislature. I've been the Republican leader for 10. You go out to two or three events a night and people say real stupid things to you. Uh, But you can't say it's stupid because you're an elected official and you want their vote. So you simply write it down, and then after a few years, you collect 200 of stupid things people have said, and you put it in a book. So really, it's it's kind of a gag order on me. I can't really say anything negative to anybody, but I can put it in a book because they never think it's them. That's funny. Now, what are some of the things that really piqued your... Was there some of the, the stupid things that you heard that in the process of the book, they came to your mind? Things that you had forgotten that uh, that had happened before? Sure. People come up to you and say, you look tired. Unless you're my doctor or my mother, you shouldn't be telling me I look tired because basically what you're saying is you don't look good. <laughs> and there's no, there's really no redeeming value to tell somebody they don't look good. So why say it? I mean, really, you may, maybe you call up their wife or spouse and say, I'm, I'm, if you're a doctor, I'm a little worried about John. But just don't say I look bad. <clears throat> and then people, for some reason, we've lost the ability to have eye contact. The greatest politician, I spent a lot of time with Chris Christie, spent time with a number of uh, people, including George W. Bush. They look at you in the eyes when they talk to you. People today, they're looking at their phone, they're looking over your shoulder to see who else is in the room. Look the person in the eyes. People talking about Bill Clinton. He focuses on you and nobody else, like you're the most important person in the room. That should be everyone's, everyone should follow that rule. Look people in the eyes. And John, what are some, maybe some, I mean, that's one of the ones that you would think uh, everybody should know is when you're talking to somebody is looking in their eyes. Some of the other examples that you have in the book as well. Don't talk about yourself and don't brag because why does anybody care other than your mom and dad about your success? Even your siblings don't care about your success. So why tell other people how successful you are? For example, let's assume you got a new car or something, a new boat. Well, look, if I ask you about that's one thing. But why would you brag to me? Let's assume I can't afford a boat or a fancy car. Why tell me all you're going to do is make me feel badly that I don't have it? So never brag ever. Just think about the other person. 
John, when did when did you decide that uh, that that doing some stand up comedy was that more of a just as a release for you? Was that how that first started? It's kind of in your blood. So about thirty years ago, my wife put me in the funniest New, funniest lawyer in New York contest, and I came in second. Then I won the funniest lawyer in New Jersey contest. So I've been performing now for over thirty years at clubs, Atlantic City, uh, charitable events. That's just in your blood. I, I, I really don't think you can you could teach someone to do stand up comic comedy, but it's really part of your being. So I've always kind of felt it. It, it never had a stage to do it on, and I started doing that thirty years ago. And how did that translate into the writing? Did did that just kind of go hand in hand, if you will? Well, yes, because I'm, I'm also a trial lawyer. I'm a politician. I'm a stand up comic. So in front of people. You can feel, especially in comedy, you can feel whether that audience likes you or not. And that's probably the most important audience because they're going to give you instant uh, response, whether they like you or not. So what you say in front of an audience is key. And that helps you write the book because you know how to get people to like you if you're a stand-up comic. And what are some of the things that you pulled from the comedy that you've taken into your personal life as far as getting folks to like you as well? It should be self-deprecating. It should be really, and you know, history history shows us uh, that when presidents are in trouble or governors are in trouble, sometimes if you put yourself down as opposed to just defending yourself, that works. So you go out there, and I'll, I'll say something like John Bramnick, the New Jersey politician. Uh, you can trust everything I'm about to tell you. So they, nobody trusts the New Jersey politician. Now, you're not bragging about yourself. You're actually questioning the integrity of New Jersey politicians. So people go, I like this guy. Why? <coughs> Excuse me, because I'm putting myself down. I'm not putting other people down. And what is it about comedy these days? John, how much change have you seen in the landscape of stand-up? It seems like there's so much cancel culture affecting even the stand-up comedians these days, which I, I don't think we saw coming, did we? It's an interesting question. Uh, I just saw Dave Chappelle in that Netflix uh, special, and he stood up against the cancel culture, but he did it in such a way where he explained why you shouldn't be concerned about what he's saying. So sometimes I think the media has to understand that you're not necessarily putting people down. You're making observational comedy, and that is a process, and it's never going to be nice. Uh, it, it's going to question what people do. I'm concerned that if we start limiting comedy, that's a problem. And what do you think are some of the things that comedy is able to touch? Why is it that comedy has always been able to touch uh, forbidden subjects and, and be able to touch those in a way that makes people also, you know, laugh and also think as well? Well, if you go into a comedy club, you should expect the comedian to make you uncomfortable because they're going to make observations about things that you don't normally see or observe day to day. So one of the reasons I think comics are allowed to do it is because you've chosen to go into a comedy club. When you choose to go into a comedy club and, and you're not ready to be insulted, then I think it's probably not the place you should go. <laughs> you should go, I mean, then stay at the church. Uh, yeah, that's cool. I got that. You know, you want to go to church instead of the comedy club? Great. Fine. God bless you. And how has the comedy and the writing, how has that helped you on the on the lawyer and in the public eye as well? Pretty much thinking about the other person. The more you write about why people don't like you, the more you're careful about doing things that would cause people not to like you. For example, when I used to go to a restaurant, I would pick up the menu right away. Now I always talk to the other person and wait for them to pick up the menu. I don't stick my face in the menu. Or if, if there's a seat overlooking the lake and seat looking at the bathroom, I take a seat looking at the bathroom if I'm there first. Always thinking about the other person first. You do that, and you will be the most popular person. In conversations as an assemblyman, I mean, how, how do you do, do you bring some comedy into that as well, trying to, uh, to, to keep it light and levitous, if you will? Well, of course, especially when you're being attacked. You know, you want to make sure, it's almost like judo. You want to take their energy 
and work with it as opposed to push back. So when people are yelling at you, you might say something like, I didn't know you liked me that much. <laughs> that freaks the other person out, and it also kind of throws a curveball in the situation. Sometimes comedy, humor, self-deprecation can, can open somebody else's mind to, uh, to what you're saying as well. Of course, because you're not attacking them. You're listening to them. Now, you can't be a wise guy when you do it, but you also want not get def- you shouldn't get defensive when people disagree with you. You should listen to what they have to say. And again, the new book, Why People Don't Like You. He's uh, the funniest lawyer in New Jersey, and uh, he has credited with that. Got a, got a, you got a trophy and everything, don't you, John? You bet you. Sitting right there. My, my wife goes, I don't know how you won, but God bless you. Uh, <laughs> the truth of the matter is that uh, I have trademarked Funniest Lawyer in New Jersey, and I won many years ago, and I'm not going to defend my championship unless someone comes up through the ranks. Well, John, I always want to make sure and let our listeners know where they can find not only more info about the book, but, but everything you've got going on social media-wise as well, my friend. Well, pretty much you go to Amazon. You can buy the book. It's a great Christmas gift, holiday gift for people you don't like. <laughs> they always get defensive. Or you can go to funniestlawyerinnewjersey.com and watch some of the stand-up I've done. And, and the most important thing, let's make somebody else happy. That's, that's what I like to do. That's about as good as any of us can do in everything that we do, John, that's for sure. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Cameron. Again, John Bramnick, check out the book, Why People Don't Like You. Check out his uh, stand-up comedy as well. And, John, hopefully we can catch up again real soon, sir. Well, I really appreciate, appreciate your time, and God bless. Ryan Reynolds has announced that he's going to be taking a, quote, sabbatical from making movies. Now, we just finished filming an Apple TV Plus Christmas movie called Spirited with Will Ferrell and Octavia Spencer. It's basically a modern version of A Christmas Carol. Ryan said, quote, Singing, dancing, and playing in the sandbox with Will Ferrell made a whole lot of dreams come true. And this is my second film with the great Octavia Spencer. Perfect time for a little sabbatical from movie making. I'm going to miss every second working with these obscenely gifted group of creators and artists. These days, kindness matters as much as talent. I've been lucky to work with folks who are flush with both. The Battle Rounds are continuing season 21 of The Voice on NBC. And from Team Kelly, we've got Jeremy Rosado with us. And first off, Jeremy, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show, brother. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Now, how do you deal with the emotions after picking up a battle round victory? I mean, uh, did you sleep for it? Was there a couple days you went without sleep, Jeremy? I think there were a couple days where I went without sleep for sure. It's crazy. You're battling someone like Joshika, who is like insanely talented. And, you know, you hope for the best, but you don't go in there like, hey, I'm definitely going to win this thing. So it's, it feels amazing. I'm very thankful. And it's, uh, it's a crazy ride. Now, when you got finished with the competition, and I've seen a lot of folks say that this seemed less like a battle and more of a duo for the two of you guys. And how true is that? And then what was it like getting the feedback from from Blake and Ariana, John and Kelly and and everybody after the battle round as well? Yeah. So Jashika and I were both worship leaders. So we knew that going into it, we were going to throw some soul into it, some some gospel into it. And definitely take it from being just a pop song and, and making it something, something different. So seeing those comments, I've been reading that a lot. I mean, my DMs are crazy with that. Like, Hey, this is, this wasn't a battle. There wasn't a, they can be a winner or a loser here. Like this is a duo and it's just, it's incredible. And getting the feedback from, from the coaches, you know, um, I'm happy. It's a 50, 50 split between us. You know what I mean? Because I, I, I don't think I'm a, a, a way better singer than Jashika. I don't think the opposite either. I think we are, I think we're, I want to say this as like humbly as possible. I think we're both blessed to be at this elite level of singing and be able to perform at this level. And it worked out, dude. I'm really, I'm really thankful for that. I'm, 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 I'm a little biased toward Kelly Clarkson though. I, I, I love her very much. She believes in me like nobody else on this show. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I'm still riding Team Kelly. 
Now, how much different, Jeremy, is the mindset now after the blind auditions? You've made it through the the, the first of the battle rounds. What what's your mindset now as uh, as you continue on through season twenty one? Yeah, no, the mindset is to keep winning somehow. <laughs> the mindset is really just to really manage, just trust God, and um, hope everything works out for the best. But really, to put in the work, you know, to really just really be singing that the best of my game and and to be strategic with song choice and creating moments that I think people resonate with. And I'm really thankful that like, not only did, did I win that battle with Kelly, but to watch like, you know, the app is going on the official voice app where people are voting from home, you know, like who won this and to see that America actually sided with me, like that stuff encourages me because um, I've been blessed to do a show like this before where I, I didn't get featured like I am now, you know, and, and it's, um, it's incredible to see the response and I'm so thankful in words. I, I can't even, I can't even put it into words how grateful I am right now. And and Jeremy being a, a musician myself and singing, I know whenever you take the stage, it takes a little bit to get those jitters off. And is, is that cutting down time wise for you as you get more comfortable in the, in the episodes? That's, that's the thing. It gets, it gets just a little bit easier, like going from blinds to, battles because first of all when you do blinds are you used to singing to chairs turned around because not very often exactly you're used to like seeing people's expressions and their excitement or their dislike but you get to see it in their eyes you know and so that that is a whole man that's that is wild and it's it's like this desperation to get them to turn so you're fighting for your life uh, but going into battles while you still feel like you're fighting for your life because you're fighting against someone else. <laughs> it's definitely like, okay, I've been here before. I've been in front of Ariana Grande <laughs> and Kelly Clarkson already. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, this is it's becoming just a little more normal, even though I still can't find my breath. It's getting just a little easier. And hopefully, you know, obviously we're going on to the knockouts now because I won the battle. Hopefully it gets a little easier in that one too. That would be wonderful. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Now you talked about singing to the turned around chairs. What was it like to keep singing whenever you saw a tear, a chair turning around? I mean, how, how do you continue on through that? Well, dude, my thing is, is that for mine, they, they turned like, I had like 10 seconds left in the song. So <laughs> I don't even know what that feels like to, to keep singing once they, once they turn. I mean, honestly, just like, you know what? I'll, I'm not because when I saw Kelly turn and I saw Blake turn, I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to try really hard to get all the other turns. So I threw some falsetto stuff in it. I didn't even have planned at the very end of it. So I was like, you're either going to buckle under pressure right now, or you're going to sing your butt off, boy. That's what I, you know, told myself and she didn't turn, but it's okay. It still worked out. We're still on the show. So thank God. Now, Jeremy, what has been maybe the best piece of advice that you've gotten so far from maybe one of the mentors or, or one of the coaches as well? Yeah, no, I think working with Kelly is, it's a dream come true because honestly, I say that she is the reason why I wanted to do a show like this. Saw her win a show like this and getting to meet her has been, it's so full circle for me, getting to work with her, seeing her when the cameras turn off, be the same human that she is when the cameras are on. That's the greatest thing ever. Like whatever happens after this show, whatever God allows me to continue doing if I get any ounce of success from this, I could only hope and pray that I would keep my heart the way she has and mm. be that human. Um, and I think that that's the best part of it. Like, yeah, obviously it's incredible working with Kelly. She's done a show like this too. So she knows how to be strategic, finding moments that are going to shine moments that are going to pull people's hearts on purpose to get them to want to vote and be in your corner. Yeah. But really getting to experience the genius and the uh, humanity of Kelly Clarkson is the best thing. Just being in the room is incredible. That's awesome. And again, uh, upcoming episode season 21 of The Voice. Jeremy, I always want to make sure and let folks know where they can keep up with you on socials. I'm sure those have blown up just a little bit as well, right, brother? <laughs> just a little bit. It's been insane. And it's crazy. My daughters have been insane, too, because she was on the show <laughs> in the back. <laughs> crazy. Anyway, yeah, no, but you can find me at I am Jeremy Rosado across every platform known to me. So, yeah. That's good stuff. Well, uh, continued success to you, Jeremy, as you continue on through the season. Brother, uh, uh, hopefully we can catch up again real soon before uh, before the end of it. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me, Cameron. Does it seem like people are always trying to stay busy? 
Now they've got a jam-packed calendar and brag about it like it's a good thing. It's as though being busy automatically means you're successful, popular, productive, and driven. But perhaps some of those people are actually tired and on the brink of burning out. That could be why the concept of slow living is starting to pick up steam as something good. There are more than 3.5 million posts for hashtag the art of slow living on Instagram and things like self-care, me time, and saying no to invites are now being celebrated on social media. Slow living fans argue that life is better when you can appreciate things as they happen rather than manically ticking things off of your to-do list. Now, it's unclear if the pandemic had an impact on this becoming a thing, but it definitely forced people to spend more time at home, and it cut back on the running around that many people did in their pre-pandemic hustle. Season 21 continues on NBC's The Voice and stolen by team legend Jershika Maple on with us. And uh, first off, Jershika, it's a privilege to have the chance to visit with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> now, now, tell us what the ride on The Voice has been like so far. The ups, the downs, the emotions. I mean, uh, what, did it live up to its billing, I guess, is the question. Ooh, oh, man. It has been a roller coaster, okay? But it's been <laughs> a fun roller coaster, and it has been some ups and some downs emotionally. But I feel like it's all for the best. Um, it's the journey, the experience, um, you know, the experiences. Let's talk about about that you know first of all we're here with four incredible coaches we got Blake you know John Kelly and then the new coach Ariana Grande like come on just <laughs> singing in front of her like just saying her name and just being like oh my god I gotta sing in front of the Ariana Grande is already like oh my god like I, I can't believe I'm doing this or I did this and um, so, yeah, for, for me, it has been an incredible journey. Um, emotionally, it has been only emotional because it, it kind of can mess with you a little bit. We're in a competition. So it's like you can't you can't, you know, let up. You got to stay on on point. You got to, you know, rest when you need to um, try to knock out every distraction, any negative distractions, um, anything that's going back at home. You got to, you know, realize that, too, because you're away from family. Um, so it can be a, a bit of a lot, but um, overall, I felt like the journey and the experience so far has been really, really beautiful. And I'm truly grateful to be on it. So now the the battle rounds continuing on. And, and how did you have what was the emotional setup for you to prepare for the battle rounds with wow. Jeremy, who you were you were so tight with in the first place and spoke to Jeremy earlier and, and was talking about how it was more of a duo than a battle, it seemed like. Yes. Oh, my God. Everybody is saying that. And it's so incredibly <laughs> crazy because me and Jeremy are friends like we love each other general, gen generally. And I feel like a lot of people um, when they get into the competition shows and they have to go against somebody, they immediately get into this competition mindset of like, I'm coming for your throat. And me and Jeremy were never like that. Like we had a real understanding of like, okay, hey, none of us are going home. We kept saying saying that we are still worthy because we are still worthy. And um, we really believed that. And in rehearsals, we gave our best, you know. Um, we made it hard for the coaches intentionally. We wanted to really stay and um, we we got to. And I feel like we, we had a really fine line of understanding the music. We understood each other's sounds and we wanted to respect each other's sounds and, and incorporate that in the music. And I felt like we had the, the right amount of balance. Um, and I felt like we respected one another as far as what he could do and what he can't do or what I can do and he can't do. Okay. We're just not going to do it. If it doesn't make, if it doesn't make <laughs> sense, we're not going to do it because we wanted to sound like one. Um, and I really felt like we nailed that. And, and from the, the comments and the looks of it, we did. <laughs> so. now you, you talked about uh, Ariana making you nervous in the first place. What was it yes. like to get the feedback that she had going off about those runs that you put in there as well? I felt like I was having an out of body experience. Like, oh my God, I'm looking down at my body. I want to see she said that about someone. I'm like, I'm looking down at my body. Like, is everyone really talking to me right now? Like, this is really happening. Nothing against the other coaches because they're just amazing too. I still get starstruck when I see John and Kelly and Blake. But Ariana, like, she's a major in the pop game. Like, I love her songs. And then here I am having the opportunities to speak with her and she wants me. And then it's like, oh my God, I cannot shut Ariana down. Like, but for musically 
for the musical choice, I knew it was only right to go on John's team, but man, Ariana's incredible. I love her. <laughs> now, we know that, uh, that Jeremy talked about uh, being a worship leader. I know that that's kind of where you got started yes. as well. And how much has your faith been uh, something that you've really had to hold on to, especially in the uncertainty you're going through daily, oh, right? Man. No, absolutely. I feel like I'm so grateful for my experience with being in the faith and, you know, being Christian and having some type of spiritual background, because honestly, without it, I probably would go crazy. You know, Um, I probably would be just like worried and anxious and, you know, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. You know, God's got it, you know, Um, and I fear not for he is with me. And, And that's something that I just kept saying. A lot of those scriptures I kept repeating in my mind, in my head. And, you know, I could do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me because there were times where I felt like I didn't have no strength. I was like, right. I don't know how I'm going to push through and pull through with this rehearsal. I don't know how I'm going to push and pull through with this and that and that. And I was just like, you know what? She could calm down because you're, you're you're doing what you're not. You were not taught to do. You know how to handle this. You've been through this before. And I just have to make my other life experiences what I ha- what I've learned from that, take it and put it in this. And I felt like it made me stronger. Um, I felt like it was something that I needed to see my to see myself struggle like that in order to say, Hey, I've been through this. So I, I can, I, this is nothing like I got this, you know, as far as on this competition scale, this is singing. I love what I do. So it should be easy because I, I love to sing. Right. So I have to get my mindset out of, of, I've never done this before till yes, I have, I've been doing this. It's just on a different schedule on different, uh, different level. And, um, that I felt like it was, it was intimidating a bit, but then I was like, don't let the, because int- int- once you give room for intimidation, then the lies will start in your head and then you'll start self-doubting yourself. And it was almost like a, it could be a battle in your head if you let it. So I had to kind of like stop the negative thoughts and really replace them with, with the positive. Like, yes, we're still worthy. We're going to we're going to get this thing. We're going to win. We're going to give the world a great show. And, you know, changing your mindset really, really helps the outcome. And, and, and we see how it did. So. That's I'm right. grateful for that lesson. Now, Jershika, what's been the best tidbit of uh, of coaching that you've received so far this year? What's the best uh, little tidbit that you've received? Yeah. So from Kelly Clarkson, her being my first coach, um, it's incredible because she's talked to me about um, my runs. I, she loves my runs, how they're so quick and sneaky. Um, but she also said that you don't have to do them on everything because sometimes it can take away from the song. Um, so I was like, you know what, you're right. So I, instead of doing a lot of runs and doing it all throughout the song, let's make it more pretty and beautiful and, and make sure that the um, they understand what I'm saying. Or, you know, so for me, I took that and I was like, okay, I can take that constructive criticism. Let's apply it. And let's apply it to every song throughout this journey. Um, and then learning with John, you know, for me, he was like, let's feel the song, let them feel the emotion of the song. So the next song that I, I will be doing on for the knockouts. Um, that was the advice he gave me then. And um, I really felt like it was part of my best performance. And I'm really looking forward to that one. That's good stuff. And uh, Jershika, I always want to make sure that we let the listeners know where to keep up social media wise. I know that they want to be able to vote for you when that time comes as well. Where's the best yes. place to keep up with all that? Awesome. So my Instagram would be Jershika underscore and that's J-E-R-S-H-I-K-A underscore. Um, my Facebook is Jershika Maple Music. Um, and my TikTok is Shika Sings and that's S-H-I-K-A Sings, S-I-N-G-S. Um, and then my Twitter is Jashika J Maple. And that is all my social media. <laughs> you, you, for now. For now, right? For now. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Jershika, congratulations on, on your successes thus far on season 21. I look Thank forward so to, uh, to many more to come. And uh, hopefully we can catch up again real soon. Likewise. Thank you so much, Cameron. You have a wonderful day. Do you have a go-to food hack? Well, someone asked people to name a secret ingredient that can make your favorite food even better. And here are some of the weirder suggestions that we've seen. Number one, instead of salting your popcorn, use ramen noodle seasoning. Just tear that little silver packet open, dump some of the powder on with melted butter. Number two, mustard in your mac and cheese. Now a little dip of Dijon adds some zest and gives the flavors more depth. Just don't overdo it. You don't want it to actually taste like mustard. Number three, tagine seasoning on fruit. Now, that one's not that weird. A lot of people swear by it. It's called a Mexican fruit cup. Number four, instant coffee in your chocolate chip cookie batter. 
Now, the person who suggested it says instant coffee works best because it dissolves. Regular coffee messes with the texture too much. Number five, making grilled cheese with mayonnaise instead of butter. Put a little mayo, hot sauce, and garlic powder in the pan instead of butter. It's supposed to be much better. And number six, sour cream in your scrambled eggs. Before you cook them, mix in a tablespoon of sour cream and use less milk than normal. It's supposed to make them fluffier and they'll also taste better. Got some new music. Keep been working on this one for a minute. Michael Monroe Goodman, his new single, Oh, What a Pitiful Shame. And uh, Michael, first off, appreciate you taking the time to be on the show, brother. For having me. Great, uh, great to be here. Now, now tell us, uh, I said this song has been in the process for a minute. Uh, how long ago did you originally start working on this single? I, I wrote this, uh, I wrote a, a majority of this song somewhere 16, 17 years old back in uh, those days. And, um, you know, back, back when I was in high school, I was like, uh, when I first started songwriting, I was just like writing like a madman and, you know, writing a whole lot of bad songs and a few good ones there, you know, figuring out how to, how to write. And, um, a couple of years ago, I was digging through these legal pads that I had that I would write songs on. And I started going through and I was like looking for new ideas or looking to finish stuff that I maybe hadn't finished. And I found it and I was kind of looked at it and I was like, couldn't I could remember somewhere where my head was when I wrote it as far as music wise whatever and then I just kind of started looking at it and thought like you know what if I do this and move this and do this here I think I can turn it into something that uh that I really like uh you know because apparently I left it aside then because it wasn't finished or it wasn't right or whatever and so when I did all that I was like oh man now I now I love the song. I'm glad that I found it and didn't get rid of it after all these years. <laughs> now, now, how often does that happen that you have one that you've you've had to sit down for a little bit and you go back and rehash it and turns into something extra special? Um, it doesn't happen a whole lot. I usually finish a song fairly soon after I write it, but a lot of times I'll 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 get stuck or something on a song and have something and can't figure out how to fix it or I'll, or I'll try and finish it and just, and no, that's not right or whatever. And it's like, well, I got to wait, wait until something clicks and I get the solution of what that song needs or whatever. And that's happened. That's happened several times. I've got in my phone, I've got like a handful of, of songs where I'm somewhere and I got an idea and I record real quick and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to sit down at some point and uh, hash that out. Um, you know, I've, that's happened several times one of my favorite songs uh or a lot of my fans favorite songs is called tinkerbell love song on my second album and uh that song was that way i had the whole chorus in my head when i was a, probably 19 years old or whatever and uh didn't have a clue i never thought it was clever and, <laughs> and cutesy and romantic but i didn't have a clue how to finish it i was like didn't know how to make it work and i just had like a songwriting session with a guy one day and, and we were working on some other stuff and i played him that and and he's like, that's really great. And he said, reminds me of me and my kid. And it was just like the light bulb went off like that. And when he did that, then I went home a few days later and wrote it about from that point of view. And I was like, oh, that, that's what it that's how works. <laughs> you know, so sometimes you just, you got an idea and you got to sit on it a while and it's simmer or whatever, or, or something in your life changes and all of a sudden things get clear or, you know, with like with this song, Oh, What a Pitiful Shame. I'm sure I was had all that teenage angst when I wrote it. Then, you know, but then looking at it as an adult, I could look at it from a different perspective and, and uh, you know, kind of figure out, okay, this is what I need. This is how I make it work, you know. Now, tell us a little bit where the sound comes from for you. I mean, uh, definitely not just your mainstream sound that we're going to hear on Country Radio, but tell us, where did that sound originate uh, in your life? I mean, I've, I've, I've done the reading. I've read the biography. I know where it comes from, but for our listeners out there, may not know. Well, yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, in Bowling Green, Kentucky. My parents were real good friends of Bill Monroe, so I spent most of my childhood backstage at the Opry with Bill. Uh, hanging out and just getting a unintended education in country music, being around, you know, like Marty Robbins and Bar Mandrell and Bill and Bluegrass Boys and, uh, you know, every everyone that was at the Opry, you know, that's a regular there. Just growing up as a kid, kind of getting passed around as the baby around there or whatever. And, um, you know, I just 
I didn't know at the time that kind of soaked into me. And then when I was uh, uh, young, I started uh, realizing that I could sing and started singing in church first. And mm-hmm. I did that. And then I started, then I found out it'd be cool in school uh, to sing. So then I started doing musical theater and choir and, you know, formal singing or whatever in school and did real well with that. So I first had it in my head. I was like, well, you know, I can sing like that. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Juilliard. I'm going to be like next big Broadway <laughs> star, you know, with my voice or whatever. And then something hit me like 15 or 16 and started going to, uh, there was this place called Live at Libby's. It used to be a live radio show right out, right in, mm. in Kentucky, but an hour outside of Nashville. Like Garth Brooks was on there early in his career on that radio, Tracy Lawrence, a bunch of other people uh, before they were, you know, took off. And so I think it all started because I had a girlfriend and she wanted me to sing a country song. She wanted me to sing like The Chair uh, by George Strait. And, you know, and you're a young kid and you're trying to impress the girl. You do whatever. <laughs> I was like, well, I can, I can I can, of course I can sing that. I sing Broadway stuff. Of course I can sing that song. And when I went and did that on the show, it just, everything clicked. And it's like, Oh, that's, that's what I really am as a country singer. You know, it's like this, but just, and just cause I grew up on it. And, uh, and it's just, you know, um, and then since then, you know, I fell in love with the nineties country at the time was big, but then I really, really went backwards and just, um, uh, just learned all the, the old stuff and studied, all the old stuff and just really fell in love with my heroes like Merle Haggard and, and Buck Owens and Waylon and Roger Miller and, and Billy Joe Shaver and guys like that. And so, you know, I just kind of, I just go back and just trying to soak up as much as that as I can, you know, my, my bandmates, they make fun of me where they like call me like the human jukebox and <laughs> my shows. And we've got like a 200 song set list we do, but they're like, Oh, it's the best parts where Michael just says, let's do this when you don't know it, but follow me. <laughs> you know, I'll get it. I was like, Oh yeah, I remember this song I learned that I love or whatever. And, and so uh, they like call me the encyclopedia of, of country music that way. And I just, I just love it so much that, that I've just kind of, you know, over the years just consumed every decade and just devoured it, you know, until, cause I just want to know so much about it and, and connect with it so much. And it's taken a few years for me to kind of uh, figure out, my voice in that and not try and be everything all at once. You got to be who you are. You know, um, you, you can't be every influence or whatever. You can't clone people or whatever. And so, you know, I feel like on this album, I've, I've, I've finally, I took, had the confidence in producing this album to step into doing, trusting my instincts of like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to do. It's like, I know. And so when I look back at it, this album, it's a, a collection of songs and they're all, they're all different. It's not just an album of all the same sounding country type song, you know, but it's like all the songs I've written in there, they all have their own identity and they all, um, you, you can listen to them and, and, and hear the influences, you know, you listen to one song, you'll go, Oh, I can tell he really loves Jerry Reed from this song, or, you know, I can tell he loves George Strait from this song, or I can tell he loves, <clears throat> you know, like there's a little bit of, Brooks and Dunn or something in this song, or, you know, this song's very w- Willie Nelson or Merle Haggard. And so you can, you know, it's, it's still essence of me, but some songs you can, you can hear. And I mean, I can, and I, I, I know <laughs> people don't see it, but I know where I'm like, Oh, I know. Cause I mean, as all of us music artists, uh, we, we all cleverly steal, you know, from, we, we steal all kinds of little things from all of our influences. So maybe other people don't see that and they just see it as one organic thing. But me being the, the, the anal, analytical person I am, I can see, I'm like, well, I know this song's got a little bit of this. I stole this, this person and stole this person, you know, but, but luckily it's all mine. So, you know, <laughs> now did you, with uh, being raised up on the bluegrass and the, the, uh, the classic country feel, did you ever go through a stage where you were rebelling against that and, uh, and wanted to go totally the opposite? Did that happen for you too? Yes, that that totally because that was my teens, you know. I was, uh, and then a whole big the the grunge movement, Nirvana, and all that stuff. And so, my dad, um, from the time I was born, and I mean, I think that being around Bill, the time I was born, my dad, it was his dream for me to grow up and be the the biggest bluegrass musician. He wanted me to grow up and be a bluegrass musician. So I had like fiddle lessons when I was two and three years old, and my parents were doing that, and you know, my dad bought me a you know, to, to show what a brat I am, 
but my dad bought me a mandolin when I was like seven or eight years old and thinking I would learn how to play the mandolin like Bill. And it was Christmas morning and I opened up the case and it was a, a teardrop shaped mandolin. It wasn't an F style like Bill played. And even little eight year old me knew what Bill's mandolin looked like. And I opened up that case and I was like, this isn't like Bill's mandolin. That's so I, was like, nope. I was like, no, if it's not like Bill's mandolin, I don't want to play it. You know, I was like, because <laughs> in my mind, it was like, no, that's the kind of mandolin you play. What Bill plays, that's what you play. And so, uh, but then, you know, in my teens, I was trying to be cool and, you know, trying to figure out how girls would like me and all that stuff, you know, and, and my knucklehead friends. And, you know, we were all into the Green Day and Nirvana and all the stuff that all the stuff as a teenager, you want to do what's popular and cool, you know, uh, so I'd, I rebelled on that. And I, you know, I, I dabbled in like songwriting in that style and and definitely tried to learn how to play guitar in that style. But, um, yeah, it was it was never a real fit. You know, it was never natural or, you know, it was it was totally rebelling. But, you know, when I few just a few years later after that, then I totally embraced everything that uh, that I knew I was. And, you know, that uh, it was a relief to my dad because uh, he. <laughs> hoping I would be that all these years. So I did, he was very excited and, uh, you know, just elated that I was, that I was into bluegrass. And, uh, I mean, I already knew all the bluegrass stuff. I'd been to every festival in the world as a kid with my dad. So I was like, I already knew the music, you know? Um, uh, but when I started singing country, uh, my dad was thrilled and wanted, and we hadn't seen Bill in a few years and he wanted to take me down long haul of Pike on a Tuesday because Bill did a, a, a jam there uh, with his band and my dad was so excited he's like i can't wait for bill to hear you sing you know he's gonna be so thrilled to hear you sing and we were supposed to go down there that next week and that week bill got hospitalized and died a couple weeks later in the hospital so i never got to i never got to sing for bill so he never got to know that uh that, that i'd started singing but uh it was three days after bill died that i wrote my first song uh, my first full song called Rosie and I cry, which was a tribute to Bill. And mm-hmm. I was so, I was so moved by, um, at his funeral, I was so floored and it really, it really come home. One, it was, it was, I'd come home because one, it was, I realized how much of an influence Bill was to me. He was just kind of like uncle Bill. I didn't realize how much Bill meant to the world because mm-hmm. uh, I was just so blessed just hang out with him and stuff. And so that hit me really hard, uh, realizing the magnitude of Bill. And then two at the funeral, it hit me real hard realizing, I think it was my first loss as a, as a kid, um, to realize how much he had meant to me. It was like losing a grandpa or losing a very close family member and to realize that he influenced me so much in my early life. That was, and so that was really the big defining moment when that happened. It, it, it really, I kind of like come to terms with who I was. I'm like, I've been blessed that I've got to grow up around this and that this is really who I am. And part of me kind of wanted to honor Bill in that way too. I'm like, I want to do something Bill would be proud of, you know, I don't want to copy him, but I want to do my own thing the way he did his own thing. And, uh, and, uh, and kind of carry that on. That's cool. Now, Michael, with, uh, being a part of Texas, uh, the Texas music scene, and uh, how much different does the is the music received on that scene as opposed to what Nashville's become over the last few years? I just think what I love about Texas, and I mean, uh, I'm, I'm working on moving to Texas because uh, I feel in my heart I'm <laughs> uh, because I just love the, the the pride of Texas, the American patriotism, everything of Texas, and. Um, but the, I, when I go to Texas and, and see my friends play or I play a show, um, um, just the fan base of Texas, the people there, they just really uh, appreciate the music. And and it's my kind of music, you know, like the, the country music I've loved is kind of uh, been left behind uh, in Nashville and in L.A., you know, or on the on the coast it's been kind of left behind. I mean, it's mm-hmm. been left behind and it, luckily there's, there's a whole, you know, independent uh, realm now with internet and everything. So you can have independent artists that don't need a label or don't need to be in Nashville and thank God for that. 
Um, but that's the, what I love about Texas is like, man, they didn't leave it behind. Like Texas people love country music and they love their brand of country music. It's got all the Texas influences in it, their heritage, they're, they're, they're still hanging on to their heritage and, you know, where it come from, Bob Wills and Willie Nelson and, 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 and all this, you know, of Texas. And, and I love that about it. I just, I think, I think Texas has the best music fans, you know, just, that's just my opinion. I think, I think they have the best music fans. So that's one of the reasons I want to be a part of it is because my job is I want to make the best music I can for people who get something out of it, you know? And so I just want to do a really good job doing the music I love and doing it for people I know who genuinely really love it, you know? And so that's, that's kind of, kind of what I want to do. I love when I go to Texas and the signs on the wall, broken spoke or wherever it's like no line dancing, you know, I just, <laughs> I love that. And it, there's nothing more. And a lot of country guys can attest. To, there's nothing more like deafening to your ears. when you're playing your country set, you take a break. And as soon as the DJ comes on, it's hip hop music. <laughs> it's like, you're like, where am I? Like you would never go to a, you would never go to a hip hop club. And when they take a break, they put some real haggard on. It's like, why is this happening? It's like, it's a country bar. Why are we not honoring country music? You know, but you don't see that in Texas. I love that about Texas. That's good. Now we've talked about uh, the, the single. Is that what you wanted to play for us today? Or, or did you want to delve into something else today? Uh, I can do, um, you got that one playing. I'll, I'll do you the, what's I think going to be my next single. How about that? That'd be and, great. Uh, um, it's off the, the new album. That's a lot. It's a fan favorite. Um, There's a song called uh, Only Fits With You. And I wrote this uh, a couple years ago. I was kind of, you know, um, I'm a settled down guy. You know, I'm a married man. And uh, I'm just, I, I was never that crazy a party guy. But I, I made my fair share of stupid mistakes when I was young. And I kind of want to make a song. I was like, well, you know, I although I'm responsible every once in a while, I want to get in some trouble, but every once in a while, and maybe only with the right person, you know? And so that's what inspired me to write this song called uh, only if it's with you. Well, we didn't get home last night until early this morning. I woke up in the kitchen and nothing but my cowboy hat With a half-empty bottle of tickle And lipstick on my pickle Feeling more banged up than an alley cat I stumbled down the hallway looking for my turtle dove You were naked as a jaybird crawling on your hands and knees I said, babe, I thought we settled down. I'm too old to be painting the town. Well, I'll never forget what you said back to me. You said, I like to get drunk every once in a while. Yeah, I like to get high every once in a while. I cause a little trouble. to run around with all of my roughneck friends till I met me this a pretty young thing down in Kalamazoo I thought things surely would change then she went and took my last name but sometimes when I get home she gets in a mood she says I like to get drunk every once in a while yeah, I like to get high every once in a while. I cause a little trouble every once in a while. But baby, only if it's with you. Well, we used to be the talk of the town when we were in our prime. But the kids and the bills got us both working overtime. 
drunk, but I like to get drunk every once in a while. Yeah, I like to get high every once in a while. I cause a little trouble every once in a while. But baby, only if it's with you, oh yeah, oh baby. That's good stuff right there. Michael Monroe Goodman and uh, Michael, I want to make sure and uh, and let our listeners know where they can uh, not only find uh, the music, find uh, your socials, tour dates, all of that information. Where's the best place for uh, for everybody to keep up with everything? Go to michaelmonroegoodman.com and see you can get links to everything on there. Uh, all social media is just at Michael Monroe Goodman, all one word. Uh, so you type that in anywhere and it'll take you right to me. Luckily, I'm the only Michael Monroe Goodman in the world, so I didn't have to compete for that. <laughs> there were way too many Michael Goodmans, so it's a good thing I use my full name. Uh, but yeah, you, michaelmonroegoodman.com, you know, iTunes, Spotify, all that thing out. The, Album's out, come out a few weeks ago, and uh, you can hear all the new tracks on there and look forward to uh, where I'm touring around uh, this winter and next spring and stuff. All right. Well, uh, Michael Monroe, Goodman.com. Catch him on all the socials as well. It has been a privilege to have the chance to visit with your brother, and uh, hopefully we can catch up again real soon. For sure. Thank you, man. Well, thanks again for joining us for this 137th episode in Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. If you ever have a comment, a question, maybe anything else you'd like to know, you can hit me up on the contact page at gqwithcam.com. You can also find me on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at gqwithcam. If you'd like to help out in the funding for this podcast, you can do that by visiting our merch store where we've got hoodies, shirts, tumblers, mugs, stickers, and much more. That's gqwithcam.com forward slash shop. And if you have a special guest idea, email me gqwithcam at gmail.com. Do want to say thanks to our good friend Brandon Allen for coming up with our theme music. We're going to let him play us out 